As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain meeting. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. What you doing down here, you surely, man? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sugar Club. Introducing, first of all, he's the unthreatening country voice in your podcast, Dahi O'Shea Light. It's the Nevin Maguire of sports broadcasting, Kieran Murph Murphy. Returning from the octagons of Las Vegas, he promised he hasn't been swayed by the UFC. It's Ken Early. And finally, the sports badger, our generation's Doogie Donnelly, Owen McDevitt. Thanks, everybody. Hello, hello. Good crowd. You're all very welcome along, first of all, to the Irish Times Second Captain Sports Night with Rabo Direct Part 2. We're back in the Sugar Club here. Uh, what I want to know tonight is, will this show go the way of most sequels, or will it book the trend and produce a classic like The Godfather Part 2, or I Still Know What You Did Last Summer? Uh, or Hot Shots Part 2. It's now become customary for Ken to describe the scene and the audience in attendance for our podcasters. He loves this part of the show. For our podcasters who are listening to the program, so be our podcasters' eyes, Ken. Uh, well, up here, it's kind of a, you know, toddy couches, um, scruffy rug. Uh, but out there, kind of darkness, candlelight, red velvet. So up here, it sort of says uh, Baggett uh, Bag Street bedsit. And, and up there with the kind of rank animal uh, scent I can, I can get coming down here, it's oversubscribed satanic mass. So, uh, so that's the situation. Two of the, uh, probably the biggest names in the history of sport are in the news today. Uh, yeah, and it was uh, 10 years ago this week that Lance Armstrong uh, was, uh, you know, racing down a packed Champs-Élysées uh, to win his seventh uh, straight Tour de France, I think it was. Uh, and afterwards uh, got up and, on the pulpit and said, uh, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for you if you can't believe in miracles. Uh, <laughs> and meanwhile, Tiger Woods was winning the Open Championship by five strokes from Colin Montgomery. Uh, this week, a uh, slightly heavier Lance Armstrong is, uh, right, <laughs> is riding around completely deserted stages of Tour de France. The only people there are journalists. Tiger Woods, now ranked 241st in the world, uh, finished his round at the Open dead last. So it's kind of probably the question, whose life is actually worse now, Lance Armstrong or Tiger Woods? Well, we'll ask the crowd. It's Tiger, isn't it? Yeah, who would you rather be? Uh, would you, uh, any Lance people out here? One. One person must be. Only one. So the rest of one, you... One but extremely enthusiastic Lance fan there. Are the rest of you all Tiger maniacs? 
<laughs> You'd rather be Tiger Woods wandering around, embarrassing himself in front of millions of people every week. Okay. We've got I, some of your sure favourite Irish Times, second captain's GA pundits on the way, and you're going to hear the greatest comeback story what I've ever heard anyway. Limerick jockey Brian Toomey, he suffered a horrific fall a couple of summers ago, just over two years ago now. He was given very little chance of surviving, let alone walking and talking again. But he managed to prove everyone wrong. And just last Sunday, he made his competitive comeback to racing. It's a, this is a tough, tough man. And I can't wait to chat to him a little later. We'll also have a live P. Bezo that Murph will deliver for all our brothers mm-hmm. and sisters around the world. And tonight, we'll be giving two members of our audience here the chance to win €1,000 in our Rabo Direct €1,000 Challenge. Yeah. Very enthusiastic crowd, huh? Tell the people how they can do it, Murph. Well, we could have packed the Sugar Club 10 times over here tonight, 20 times over. But the people who are here know what they have to do to, to, to get in. They have to go to huge lengths, to hell and back to get in here. And by that I mean fill out a short online form. But on that form we asked, describe who your sporting hero was when you were 10 years old. It's a tough one, Owen, because it's hard to remember the little person that you were back then. Here was me around that time, you know, just uh, chilling with the Padre there. There he is there. Yes, mm. yes. So we're holding hands. What's the big deal? Um, uh, now, the, uh, the composers of the two best answers we received will find it out on stage tonight for the 1,000 euro. That's your cute... Uh, yeah, there we go. Rabbit Direct Challenge. Uh, some, like Graham Kirk, took a crass and, quite frankly, classless approach to the whole thing. Graham wrote, Davajinla was my sporting hero when I was 10. If only Rabbit Direct was around when I was growing up, I would have had somewhere to save my money. Alas, it was not, and I never got to see him live. Now, uh, <laughs> Currying favour like that on it's pathetic. But uh, others uh, gave us amazing, heartfelt examples. So let's take a trip down memory lane to a more innocent time. On a cold and grey Chicago morning, a poor little baby child was born. <laughs> and his mama Nice collage of photos there, Murph. I like smiley little six-year-old here on there in his Galway jersey and in his, uh, in his school jumper. But that happy-go-lucky child seems to have given way to a rather broody teenager at some point. Mm, nice elastic on my school tie there as well. That's uh, always a good look. Yes, it is time for the second captain's Heroes of Our Youth segment. Ken, why don't you take us through our first few, please? Uh, with pleasure, Owen. Uh, Richie Holland, uh, I hope you're here tonight. Uh, when Hi, I was Richie. ten, my sporting hero was the flame-haired flamethrower of dribbling, Steve McManaman. Went to see him play in a friendly in Lansdowne Road against Shelburne in 1994. Managed to get round to the players' exit after the match and caught a wide-eyed glimpse of my hero staggering out the door under the bus, clutching a slab of Carlsberg tins. Ashling, <laughs> uh, Ashling says that uh, Paolo Maldini has always been the man for me. As a 10-year-old soccer-mad tomboy, I didn't know if I wanted to shift Paolo or be Paolo. I still don't. A football genius and an Adonis. Oh, Paolo. <laughs> John O'Connor is in here. My hero was Brian Stafford, the Meath footballer. He inspired me to play GA, and I ended up as a county player myself. He also ended up being a great friend of mine, who I will bring to the show along with me if I win the tickets. What? John, where are you? Are you, st- are you as good as your word? Stand up, Brian oh, Stafford, Oh, stand please. up, please. Round of applause, Brian up. Stafford, get, everybody. Get up, get up, Brian Stafford. The umbrella, the, the royal wave. <laughs> okay, we've got to move on from that celebrity. Celebrity loving because Connor Dillon says, as a 10 year old, my hero was Brian Stafford. Says <laughs> Connor Dillon. I modeled my running pace on his, zero pace. Unfortunately, trying to model his unnerving accuracy proved slightly more difficult. Up there with Terry Ferguson as being the most undervalued member of that glorious Meath team, says Connor. <laughs> and Carl Trotman, Jimmy Superfly Snooker was my hero. We've got a couple of wrestling fans. I used to imitate his finishing move early uh, every morning as a means of waking up my dad, jumping from the top of the dresser on top of him. Needless to say, he'd almost shit himself. I was more of a Coco Beware man myself, but that's okay, Carl. Okay. Uh, Keno Canella says, Big Quinner. I think he means not Quinn there. I had the pleasure of meeting him under Lansdowne Road after an island-friendly international. Blagged my way down after the game. Quinn was being interviewed by Sky. I immediately shouted, Quinner, you're my hero. To which he replied, well, you're a bit sad then, aren't you? <laughs> uh, Kate McAvoy. Kate McAvoy rec- reckons a Rancho Sanchez Vicario showed 10 year old me that being short, balchy, and an excessively sweaty exerciser weren't barriers to greatness. All these traits still apply. Uh, Jack Layton says, When I was 10, exactly 10, it was 1987. Tennis was big that year for me. 
Can't say why, but I really liked Ivan Lendl. He was actually rather cool with a mad vein on his temple. I was devastated when he lost to Pat Cash in Wimbledon. I got over it, as at the same time I was developing my first crush, Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> Uh, Leo Sands uh, uh, got in touch as well. My hero was and is Mickey Linden. He was a glorious forward, but a harsh driving test assessor. He failed me twice. Ouch. Uh, and uh, Brian Carolyn uh, also emailed in. Damien O'Reilly for his Marco Van Basten-esque volleyed point in Breffney Park to draw our first round championship game against Donegal. YouTube it. Nothing more needed to say. Well, we did. Uh, shall we have a look, everyone? Yeah. Yes, I think Up so. Go the big man. Aiden Waters collects it. Loves it in. There's a race. Damien O'Reilly. Ah, he's insane. Stop it. The full majesty is viewable from here. That's literally the best point of Gaelic football I've ever seen in my entire life. The first of our finalists, though, it's Maeve O'Neill. Maeve, where are you? We're over Maeve. here on the right-hand side as I look. Okay, Maeve says, when I was 10, my hero was Satanto Halpian. Picture the scene. Before a big under-12 juvenile match against Napiershig, I was playing in it. I had heard rumours from my friends on the bench that Satanto Halpian and his older brother, Sean O, were watching on. I scored 2-3. Note, I was the only girl playing on the pitch with 11 other smelly boys. And we won as a result of my late goal. The next day, when I came home from school, I was delighted to find that Satanta had given my sister a note. They worked together in AIB, and it read, Great game, Maeve. Good luck in the final. Uh, I kept this note in my jewellery box for years and years. It was only last year, when I moved to Dublin, that my sister told me the truth. She had written the note, and Satanta was not at the match. I was good. Murph, poor Maeve was good. Get down there. Give the woman a hoodie. Nice round of applause. Thanks, folks. Maybe you're also going to get the opportunity to win a thousand euro a little bit later on. We'll find an opponent for you in a little while too. Right now though, folks, can you please give it up for three of your favourites, Anthony Moyles, Desi Dolan and Ushin McConville! I hope you're all well. All good on, yeah. Now, the three boys here, as you can see, and you know if you're regular listeners, as I'm sure you are, that they're three impartial GA pundits. But now and again, county allegiances do come out on the podcast. A few weeks back, a stunned Anthony Moyles explained to us how he came to terms with the devastating blow of his beloved Mead losing for the first time ever in the championship to Westmead. And last night, I was tipping through on Shocklin. Wheeled into the super value... Bought six bottles of Heineken, <laughs> a bottle of wine, a packet of O'Donnell's salt and vinegar crisps. The big one. The big one. <laughs> yeah, we know the one, yeah. And then I said, that's not enough. So I went into McCarry's and I went for a chicken burger, chips, with curry sauce. And even that wasn't enough. And I went for the giant spice burger. Ah, good man. So the question is, Anthony... Have you, did you recover from that uh, loss of composure? Are you on a spice burger a day diet now, still recovering? What I actually like is that actually is the Macari's in the chocolate. Yeah, listen, yeah, that, we, we don't do that half hours in this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we actually sent a man out to Dun Chocolate to take that photograph. <laughs> That's some we're, serious we're just birded buddy here. It's ridiculous. That day's yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a bad day on. Um, great day for Westmead, obviously. Bad day for Mead. Ended with our year, really, because I couldn't see them um, recover from that. And subsequently, obviously, didn't. They put it up against Tyrone, but um, that's it, gone. Gone in uh, early July. And, before uh, the British uh, Open is always bad news. Well, if I you're heard, gone I, before the British Open, you're in big trouble, really. Yeah, I think some of my worst years, and we had a few, was if you were gone by Galway races. Yeah. Um, but I believe I got a text from a fellow yesterday who said he met a few of the boys down at the Killarney races. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, That is yeah. bad. Yeah. Now, there, 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 was, there is a theory out there in Galway football that... You know, every defeat, say, in mid-July, there is a silver lining, you know, in the Ballybrit horizon, effectively, that, you know, you can go on the lock for a week. If, uh, if, if, no, if nothing else, you have the races to look Desi, forward to. did you manage to keep your shit together when Westmead won that? Oh, no, we were mental. <laughs> it was brilliant. Uh, three goals in 21, beaten Mead. It was party central in Westmead for a good few days. It was actually party central still when they played Dublin. They got ha hammered again, like, you know. 
Oshin, you, uh, I presume you were on the Spice Burgers yourself after Armagh Galway? I've never actually had a Spice Burger before. I had it. What's he missing, I was, on a, sta- I was on a stag party uh, actually last weekend, so when I got home f- on Monday, I had two battered sausages and a curry chip. That has literally and nothing and to do with game football. Somebody that's had a, that's if just some, if somebody had to give me six bottles of Heineken, I wouldn't have thanked you for them. <laughs> and I still won't, actually. All right, listen, the big story this week, uh, as far as I'm concerned, anyway, the GA are going to investigate the recent Dublin Armagh game uh, that saw Davy Byrne, one of the Dublin players, suffering uh, facial injuries, a broken nose and facial injuries, some stitching, apparently. Does it look to you like the GA have sort of bowed to public pressure here after initially looking as though they weren't going to do anything? Um, yeah, it does, actually. Yeah, The GA, the old uh, the GA fudge, as it's, as it's well known, these behind-the-closed-door games have kind of become a recent phenomenon. You know, like, I mean, back when we played, you'd, 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 you'd play challenge games open at a pitch, and there was always supporters there and a the big crowd there. So there was never, and there was a referee there. And it, it, if things got slightly out of hand, it was always sorted out. You might have a referee saying, look, take that lad off, he's lost his head, or whatever it is. But behind, behind you know, closed doors is carte blanche for some fellas. Um, and obviously, things got way out of hand. It was kind of tried to be swept under the carpet, I think, through various forms of media. I think it was like, okay, we, we need to actually look at this or be seen to look at this. Whether we actually get anything out of it is the, is the real question. Yeah, well, if you'd need the cooperation, presumably, of both counties, Oshin, to get something out of an investigation, and it doesn't look as though, certainly up to now, it doesn't look as though Dublin or Armagh want to get involved. Oshin's scratching his head here. Yeah, for the benefit of our podcast listeners. Cooperation, Oshin. Whatever is said in here stays in here. Okay. <laughs> Will anything come out of the investigation if neither county wants it to? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it's in any... Well, it's in Davy Bourne's interest to get to the bottom of it. I think that's the first thing to say. I think the second thing to say is that <clears throat> this was an incident that was born out of a few um, fringe players, I think would be the best way to describe them, trying to lay down a marker. And that's what Anthony says about it's carte blanche and, and things can get out of hand. I think I told you... You know, recently about we used to play me in a challenge match every single year from I got onto the panel. I used to absolutely hate it because I was about ten and a half stone. I remember the first time I was introduced was Mark and Darren Fay. Uh, that was that was as bad as it got for me that day. But the second day we played them, uh, Graham Garrity and and Jerry Reed. If anybody remembers Jerry Reed playing with yep. Armagh. Um, and I got out of hand one night and, and a free-for-all started. And I was thinking, well, at least we'll not have to go back to Meath and to Navin next year to play that challenge match. And we were back next year and we were back the following year and we were back the following And the same thing happened every year. And the management we had at the time thought it was a good idea that we go down there and get a good hiding before we go into the championship. And, uh, and, and Character and, forming, like. Desi, tell us this. I mean, this idea of anything goes at these challenge games... It's, it's pretty dangerous stuff. And what's interesting is Dublin, a couple of things, but one of them is Dublin brushing it under the carpet. And Jim Gavin comes out and says, look, the players have had a frank conversation about it. They're, they just want to move on at this stage. The two managers have talked. We just want to move on. Is that enough? Is that acceptable that if they all wanted to go away, it should go away? Uh, if it was Leitrim and Longford playing a challenge game, it'd probably be brushed under the carpet. If it's Dublin, it's a whole different ball game because... And in fairness, the Dublin players have a whole lot to deal with because the, the media is all based in Dublin. So in fairness, them players have an awful lot to deal with in trying to keep the trying to keep a you know a safe safe um, you know a good profile and keep a positive image. Like, and it's very very difficult in Dublin for all them players because they are the one group of players that the pressure is on every single year. Um, in terms of the video, as far as I know, the video went in. There's nothing on the video, surprisingly. Yeah. So, like, it's, I don't know how this investigation is going to take place. Well, yeah, it could take place if Dublin wanted to give testimony, wanted to, if, if Davy Byrne wanted to explain what happened, and if Dublin wanted to launch a case, which they've shown no willingness to do so far. And I'm just not quite sure why that is. Is this idea that you're not supposed to tell tales, essentially? Well, but if it's somebody who's been badly hurt like that, trying to play an amateur game? To be honest, I'd be surprised if any player comes out and speaks. Like, there is a code of ethics like it's not a great code of ethics, but at the same time, even even when your nose is broken in a friendly game, yeah, like yeah, I, I understand. Like people will be won't be uh, too impressed about it, but at the same time, I can't see a player like that was on that pitch that day deciding here. I'm going to put my hand and say, yeah, I seen everything, and he did this and he did that. No player is going to do that. Yeah, well, like my concern is kind of that this was a bit of a PR botch 
in a lot of ways, in that the, like the Dublin, the management kind of said, oh, well, we've discussed it. You know, say, McGinney and Jim Gavin sat down, had a discussion about it, and, and as a result, th- what they thought was going to happen there was, oh, well, the two lads have discussed it, so it's fine, whereas everyone else is like, hold on a second, you, you two can't be, you know, judge, jury, and executioner here. And I think that, can't, that, that particular thing got a lot of people's backs up, that the two managers would just say, right, well, you know, we'll handle it. I think that's the, that's, I think that's the I, big problem I think problem it's the one interview have. in Jim Gavin's time as manager where he actually gave something away he shouldn't have given away. Because yeah. generally when he comes on, he's talking an awful lot, but he's actually saying nothing. In this interview, he got caught, he got spooked. That's the one with Colin Parkinson. Yeah, it was yeah. with Colin Parkinson. He, he, he got spooked a bit. He was going, it wasn't going well. He knew it wasn't going well. And instead of getting out of it quickly, the questions got worse. He got worse. And all of a sudden, the transcript, when you read it back, is really, really bad for Jim Gavin. And I'd say Woolley will not be getting too many interviews from him again. Do yeah. managers have... Uh, in fairness, I thought the questions were all fine, though, from, from Colin Parkinson, just to, to put that one on the record, because... If well, I didn't say they weren't fine. Yeah, but I said Jim didn't handle them well. Yeah. <laughs> but the... Okay, we accept that a player, unless they're very brave, or unless maybe they're a senior player, aren't going to book the trend. And in the case of Davy Byrne, he's a fringe guy. He's not going to do anything that will rock the boat. Uh, even though there's an argument that, that maybe he should. Is that not where the managers come in, Oshin? And would you think that the managers have too much power in cases like this if they believe that they can just have a chat to each other and decide nothing else is going to come of it? Yeah, but I think, I think we've given them, within the GA, we've given them that power. I mean, they have more or less control over county boards, more or less have control over fixtures. Uh, they more or less have control over when their county players play for clubs and all that sort of thing. So we've given them that power, and they feel as if they are going to extend that power. If you give somebody an inch, they'll take a mile, and I think in this case, that's what county managers are doing. And I think the other thing about this is we wouldn't be having a discussion only to serious injury about it. I mean, this happens week in, week out in club matches all over, I know, all over our match. It doesn't make it right, though, you know? What? It doesn't make it right either, though, you know? I didn't say it makes it right, but I'm just saying it, it, it is happening all the time. We're not dealing with it the way we should be dealing with it. So, therefore, an incident comes along like this and it's accepted. Like, generally speaking, throughout the country, it's accepted that nothing is going to happen about this. Not that it shouldn't, but that nothing is going to happen. I think we were just actually saying, we'd be very surprised if there's a suspension out of this. The three of us were just saying, no, it's not right. We don't condone it. But at the same time... It'd be a disaster yeah. for our football. You're not condoning it, but it doesn't sound like anyone... It sounds like, it sounds like the three of you think that... Maybe this is just how things are. Well, it, like, I mean, look, lots of people have played Gaelic football. Different. It's a physical contact sport. You know, you look at ice hockey in the States, you look at different sports. Uh, things are going to happen. Uh, probably, the question is, if they came out and said, look, there was, there was an incident, yes, there was these two free fellas involved, that's it, bang. We're, we're actually going to discipline them ourselves within the team. Um, but the way to stop this is, the GEA just say, look, Behind closed doors games are being disciplined exactly like as if you're playing a championship or a league game. Yeah, the GA president has come out and said that, uh, albeit yeah. that seems to be on the back of some public pressure. Yes, but you know what? Quite often, as in the GA, something happens and then they react. And this is exactly what's happened. Now, something's happened, they're reacting to it. But look, you could go down the route. I remember years ago in, in, in me, there was, a, there was a fairly big schmozzle, as, as, as they call it. This is a schmozzle, a pretty big one. But the, the, there was a tape found, an old video cassette was found, and it was sent in, and the county board were saying, look, we need to get to the bottom of this. A couple of fellas were badly hurt, and the team sent in the tape. So as the, everyone was sitting there, the disciplinary team were there, everyone was there, the two teams were in, chairman, county board, the whole lot, watching the video on the old 24-inch, watching it away, and just as it came to the incident, it broke into a bit of Looney Tunes and a bit of Daffy Duck and stuff came in. And then it kind of about a minute and a half later comes back to the game with two lads stretched on the ground. So we've come a bit from there. Oshin, Not much. You mentioned the games that you played against, uh, against Meath, the challenge games. I don't know if that continued many years after that. We've got a picture here of you squaring up to a hard man from the Meath team. Yeah, it's disgusting. That'll be Anthony Moyles we, there. We need to stop this out, you know. I'm sure some pretty, no some, pretty, games. some pretty witty banter being exchanged at this point. Let's just say he didn't come back for more after that, Miles. <laughs> I'm actually just worried where his right hand is and where it was going there. That was an old trick of Oshin there. <laughs> we have three provincial finals coming up this weekend. The Donegal modern game, it's interesting because you did say in the podcast a few weeks back, Anthony, that you feel it might be a bit of arrogance creeping into Donegal's approach this year. Can you explain that for us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I, yeah, I just felt against our uh, Arma that there was a little bit of kind of, you know, we're going to steamroll you. It was like, best of luck, well done to the Arma fellas. I just felt there was a slight bit of, you know, that... Not that they're taking the eye off the ball. They're a driven team. They're absolutely a driven team. They want to right the wrongs of last year. Um, but I am getting a sense that there are, there are gaps there. I think Derry showed it up. Um, I think there's ways to beat this Donegal team. They're an unbelievably strong team, but I think there's, there's ways to beat, of course there's ways to beat all the top teams, but I think Derry showed up a few, few major glitches, um, and sometimes you can get caught in this, we have a system, you know, we're, we're unbelievably uh, comfortable in this system, and we're just going to completely overrun everyone, until, like Dublin last year, you find actually someone else has thought of some way to beat us. Desi, have you seen any overconfidence creeping in? <sighs> the... Look, the bet Tyrone, the bet uh, Armagh, the bet Derry, like they're extremely tough games to come. Like, but I was at the Derry game, and with about 10, 15 minutes to go, Derry just lost their way. They could have got a couple of scores. They could have actually bet Donegal on the night. But the one thing about Donegal is Michael Murphy stood up, Neil Gallagher stood up, Carl Lacey, like the players of unbelievable quality. They're quality, pro- but also complete leaders as well. Those three Absolutely. that you mentioned, That's the thing. Like, they, they, they weren't never, even playing well against them. Surrey. They weren't actually playing well against Surrey. But then these guys just crop up with the scores at the crucial times. And the thing is, a lot of teams don't have the players of that quality. And that's the thing I think about good teams as well. You know, we always hear good teams, oh, they were there for the take in the day. But until you actually take them out, you know, they're going to remain the good teams and they're going to remain the better teams. And the one thing about watching uh, Donegal quite closely this year is that they needed a game like that. They needed a game where Rory Gallagher could take them back in and say, listen, boys, you know, maybe we're not just as good as we think we are, and maybe we're not just a finished article that we think we are just yet. And I think that, that's the one thing about the Derry game, and that will have made, have made them realise there's still plenty of work to do, but still look on to be a seriously awesome machine. Can that creep into a team, though, the idea that we're so well-suited? I think that's what you were talking about, Andy. We're, we're so on top of our system. We know exactly what we're doing. That gives us almost bulletproof confidence, and there's always that thin line. Absolutely, until somebody comes along, mirrors your system, and almost beats you. All they needed was big performance from Owen Bradley, or one more top forward to bring off the bench. So what you're saying here is... Or one more correct. forward, should I say, to bring <laughs> off the bench. No, but it is. It happened Dublin last year. You know, everyone was saying Dublin were going to steamroll teams. They were playing a beautiful brand of football, very, very attacking style. No one could see... How's this team got? Like, I mean, the odds you going think into Donegal. Is that what happens to these teams that they feel themselves that they're pretty much unbeatable? Absolutely. Well, you know, Jim Gavin has a massive backroom team. He's fellas up in the stand. Supposedly, the stats are there as the team are walking into the dressing room. They're up on the wall. They're given stats. They break off defenders, forwards, midfielders, and you're literally told this is how many balls you got. Blah blah blah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, someone saw what was happening, and there was there was warning signs in that game of. There's no one at home at six. There's no one in that centre-half back position. And they could leak goals. And subsequently they did. And the wheels came off. The other couple of games, obviously it's big for some of the counties involved. But you'd assume that Mayo won't be too ecstatic if they win. Connacht and Kerry won't be too broken-hearted if they lose to Cork, assuming they come back through the back door. There have been a lot of ideas floated about this summer about how to fix the football championship. The GPA have come out with something. Oh, that might have, there might have been media jumping the gun there a little bit. But Jim McGuinness... I know Murph wrote up a piece in the Irish Times a couple of weeks back that you were, you were quite impressed with. I'm going to give yeah. you 60 seconds to explain it to our, our audience. Okay, our well, this is Jim McGuinness's uh, idea for restructuring the uh, championship, which is to play the Sam Maguire championship for the top 16 teams and a second-tier championship for the bottom 16 teams. 16 teams in the Sam Maguire will be seeded and will be as follows. The eight teams to finish, finish that year's league in Division 1, i.e. the two promoted teams from Division 2 and the six teams that survived in Division 1. Seeds 9, 10, 11 will be the two relegated teams from Division 1 and the team who finished third in Division 2. The 12th seed will be the winners of the lower-tier championship the previous year. Now, the last four places will be kept for the winners of the four provinces, the provincial championships to be run off late April throughout May. So instead of it taking 12 weeks to play the six games in the county championship, which it did uh, this year, unbelievably, uh, it'll be played in four weeks, weekend of quarterfinals, weekend of semifinals, play the final, that's it. If, as you'd expect, some of or all of the winners of the provinces have already gained qualification through their league position, you fill those positions with the teams in the bottom half of Division 2, until you've 16 teams. After that, first seed plays 16, second seed plays 15, and you flip a coin for home advantage. So that's, that's pretty re- much it. We could all have that, could, right? Could yeah. you repeat it, please? <laughs> yeah. It's crystal. But yes. I mean, I, like, I actually do think that it's, 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 it seems complicated because I'm reading it out and you don't have it in front of you, but it's actually not. And what it does is 
it links the league, the, the provincial championships, and the All Ireland. Yeah, so Champions. essentially, the league stays. Like the league is still there. The provincial championships are still there, and then there's an All Ireland Championship. But you can get seeded higher and get into the higher All Ireland competition via either the league or the provincial championship. Exactly. Win that. That's exactly it. So if you're uh, say Kildare, that was the example that Jim McGuinness used in his Irish Times article. If you're Kildare, you get relegated from Division Two. Uh, you're in Division 3, you're not going to be in the top tier of the championship. The Leinster Championship comes around in May, and if you go and win the Leinster Championship, you're in the San Maguire, so you still have a chance. No one here is uh, in this system, no one is telling the Longford footballers, right, you're just not good enough, so play in the Tommy Murphy Cup or the Paddy O'Shea Cup or whatever you want to call it, you know? So you, you're just not good enough, you don't have a chance to win the Ireland. I think that's very important to a lot of people, that we don't, if you do go and restructure the championship, that you're not telling someone... You're just not good enough. And I think that th- this system, and I mean, it's something that we, you need to sit down and think about anyway, but it's fair to the, the weaker teams, but it's actually also fair to Donegal this year. For instance, like we've already mentioned it, who have they played? Tyrone, Armagh, Derry. They haven't even won a provincial championship yet. Kerry had to be Tipperary to get to the same, to get to the same level. I mean, I, I said it on to you, you guys yesterday. You've probably all seen it already. I mean, it seems pretty fair to me, does he? I think the one, the one thing I would say about it is, is that come bank holiday weekend in August, the championship gets really exciting. Then you'll have maybe an odd replay, you'll have a semi-final, then you'll have a final. It was all, with all great teams because the bad teams are weeded out. And everyone says, do you know what? It wasn't a bad championship after all. Forgetting about all the brutal results that on yeah. all the Division 4 teams. Yeah. At this stage, all the Division 4 teams are gone. Jim McGuinness' suggestion is a brilliant suggestion. Whether we'll have enough weeks in the year is the big debate. But in terms of incentivising everything... And that's it too. Like We spend March and April talking about league games that no one cares about. Even if you are a bad team, you have an incentive to go out and do something in some competition with the the carrot of improving. And that's the thing. Like A lot of Division 4... Look, Division 3, Division 4, they'll all be weeded out in the next week or two. That's just the reality of it. And that's the way it goes on every year. But people forget. Come the All Ireland final, people are forgot. They don't actually care. Champions we had two good, good semi finals last year in yeah, football. Sem- everything was yeah, right with football great again. again. Yeah, yeah. But the reality is, like, if, uh, the thing that frustrates me is Jim McGuinness thinks about it for a week and it's a brilliant suggestion. Should, should someone say, here, Jim, will you get on a committee in Crow Park and maybe come up with a few more good ideas? Or like minded people, because this is a problem. I don't know how the GA can't recognise it isn't a problem. But in, in one week, Jim McGuinness can give a reasonably good solution. So give, imagine if you give him a month to think about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Now, I, I would say to that, right, I'm a member of a GA club. I'm sure a lot of people here are members of GA clubs. You're members of GA clubs. If we, go to our, if we go to a club meeting and say, right, this is a really good idea, why don't we bring it forward to the county board? I mean, instead of thinking about it as, right, the lads in Crow Park have to sort this out, is there something that we can do as ordinary GA club members to say, listen, this is actually ridiculous. The club scene's a joke. The inter-county scene's a joke. Like, we go, obviously, the big problem with this is, you know, where the club game's going to be played. But let's fix the inter-county scene first and then worry about the club scene because at the moment, it's all a mess. Ush? I totally agree, I totally agree with that, Morph, definitely. But there is a thing we can do. When people say, and I watch people say this all the time, the GAA should. We are the GAA. We are the people who are contributing in meetings. And if you really uh, have that forceful point of view, go to your club, get on a committee, make a suggestion. That's brought to Congress, or it's at least put on a list for, for, uh, for your, your county and then your provincial, and then it's brought to Congress. And there's been a, lot of, there's been a hell of a lot of the ideas who've come, that have come from, over, even over the last couple of years, that have come from clubs and have gone right up and have been introduced and have worked absolutely brilliantly. But this thing about, let the GEA fix it. Who? Who's going to fix it? It's us that have to fix it. It's the people. There's people on committees in there, but they have to have something to work with. They can't change the rules. Only Congress can change rules, so maybe we'd need to change that rule. If we change that rule that everything must run through Congress before we actually change something, well, then maybe we might start getting somewhere. But this thing about the GEA must change... We are a GEA, and it's up to us to change it. What do you think of the McGuinness idea? McGuinness idea is good, just Morph's last point. And it'd be so, it's obviously something that's very close to my heart, but there's too many games. There's too many games, and it takes too long to run them off, and, and the club scene is struggling. I actually can see, and I was thinking of this on the way up the road on, I actually now honestly can see a point where 
inter-county players are just going to be inter-county players. And they're going to be paid or they're going to be semi-pro or they're going to be whatever. Club players are going to be playing in a, in, in, a, in a league and a championship that nobody cares about. And we're, we're slowly but surely, you watch any team that's put out early in the championship, like the teams we talk about at the minute who are getting put out early, half of them go to America. Um, the teams that are still in the championship, they don't let the club players play for the counties anyway. So you've got leagues going on in 32 counties. Well, actually, you know what? Probably 31 counties because Kerry let the players play away. All right, well, we're just about at the end of this chat, but I can see Anthony giving me uh, daggers over the last couple of minutes. I think that's because it's all right, Anthony. I have read your contract for these live events, and I know we're legally obliged to show the only point anyone can ever remember you scoring at Croker. Here you go. Yes. Let's play it. Quiet, please. You know. Brian Stafford, I hope you're watching this. Suddenly there's an injection of pace. A bit more penetration. It goes long. Has that. Has that. <laughs> Beautiful score. What a finish. Keep the applause going, please, for Anthony Moyles, Desi Dolan, and Nusheen McConville. <laughs> Ken, if you're just about ready to go, let's get to some more of these. <laughs> Fernando O'Connell says, My sporting hero as a 10-year-old was definitely Big Daddy the Wrestler in the grayscale decade that was the 1980s, in which many Irish people were desperately hunting for scraps of sport on UTV. Big Daddy's trademark bear hugs stood out as a beacon of hope. Um, Owen Feely... It says that as a young lad from the Ross, there was only one sporting hero that mattered, Shane Curran, a man who Yay. a man who once t- turned down a goalkeeping contract from Manchester United. Yes, we really believe that, to stay loyal to the Ross Common Cause. What a man. Uh, Paul Kyohan says, uh, my hero when I was 10 was Keith Kyohan, presumably his brother, uh, because he broke Shane Curran's big fat nose with a penalty. Um, Adrian... Uh, says that my sporting hero when I was 10 years old was Limerick hurler Mike Houlihan. His, his brother once broke his jaw with a shovel in a fight over a bull, and he, he still played the 96 All-Ireland four weeks later. Hero. Uh, Fergus O'D uh, says that for me it was darts' Steve Beaton, the bronze Adonis, the hairdo, the tan, the unfortunate second name in a nominative uh, determinism sense. Uh, Ty Haggerty says, my hero was Timmy McCarthy because he had the balls to wear an old-style micro-bucket helmet long after they went out of production. I actually think he bought the last one that was ever made. Uh, Don Local says, Brian Robson, he supplied my confirmation name and a yearning for uh, crappy New Balance boots. Uh, Andrew Sullivan says, it was Jeffrey McGonagall. I was a chunky but skillful 10-year-old. And the dairy baller with an arse like a bag of wet cement, according to Joe Brody, gave hope to us all, all of us chunksters. Uh, so Paul Grimes is the last one here. At the age of 10, my sporting hero was Meade's Jimmy Boots McGuinness. After that famous brawl of 96, I know that the number one offense in the Mass GAA brawl was to grab your opponent by one leg while using your free hand to fend him off. Will we check out what Paul is talking about? Yeah, that's a look. We will. Watch the punch John McDermott gets here. Peter well, Bruegel would have loved this. There, number nine. Uh, These that, angry villagers. Here's Jimmy here's McGuinness. Oh, yeah. There he goes. Not so smart on one leg, are you? Yeah. Jimmy Boots McGuinness there. Belongs uh, to the Catholic Crush. Paul Grimes. Beautifully done. But our second finalist tonight is Robert Byrne. Robert, where are you? There you are over there. No smile, Robert. No, come on. You got it. Your, your chance to win a thousand euro here. As the smallest ten-year-old in my class, says Robert. Victor Costello's barnstorming style of play and ability to flatten fully grown men meant I was his number one fan. Years later, eight to be exact, while out for dinner with my family for my 18th birthday, uh, the big man himself arrived and sat down at the table next to us. My mum, a couple of glasses of wine deep, decided that the perfect birthday present for me would be his autograph. And much to my mortification, she went over and filled him in on how I used to pretend to be him in the garden, with plenty of finger pointing to ensure there was no mistaking who she was talking about. For someone who was out celebrating becoming an adult, this was the absolute worst thing that could possibly have happened to me. He was very nice, and he signed a napkin for me, which I still have. But that's not all. It wasn't the last time our paths crossed. I lived in France for a year, and on the day I left our island, homesick and nervous about the year ahead, who was flying the plane to my new home but Victor himself, then, and I think still, a pilot with Ryanair. He always seems to show up at landmark moments in my life, and I've come to believe that he is my guardian angel. I look forward... 
I look forward to sharing a drink with Victor when he inadvertently makes an appearance at my wedding. A round of applause, please, for Robert Byrne. You, Murph, get up there and give a hoodie to that man. Yeah, you've forgotten your... You've, you've fluffed your line, Murph. Uh, you'll be up against May for the 1,000 euro Rabo challenge a little bit later on. But Robert, that's not all. You made people think you're crazy, but you may just be right about Big Vic. Maybe he is your guardian angel. Because when we came into the office today, this somehow was in our inbox. Hi, Robert. It's me, Victor Costello, ex-international there, ex-Olympian airline pilot, falconer, and lover of all things 80s. But by far, my most pleasurable career has been your guardian angel. As you know, if you're ever in trouble, just shout my name into the mirror, Big Vic, three times, and I'll always appear for you. Congratulations on having your email read out on Sports Podcast with Second Captains tonight, and best of luck in that Rabo Direct 100 Euro Challenge. At this date, Robert, with your success tonight, I feel there's nothing more I can do for you. Like all great relationships, they have to come to an end at some stage, and I wish you good luck in the future, and take care, my friend. Victor Acosta. What a gentleman. A couple of quick things about that one. Firstly, yes, it is indeed a 1,000 euro challenge. And secondly, did Big Vic look a bit unsure of the name of the program? He's yeah, I thought a little, yeah. He's like, this is the fifth one that these have done today. Yeah. I have no <laughs> idea what's going on here. Second line, pod line. Exactly. Ken, I want to talk to you a bit about the most eagerly awaited annual event of the Irish football calendar. It's the FAI AGM this weekend. Yeah, so there's not really, um, you know, it's a great deal of excitement about the FAI AGM uh, this year. Uh, we were looking forward to John Donating finally uh, talking to some journalists, but there was some unpleasantness last month um, uh, regarding certain issues. Uh, so he had promised that this time, finally, because what happens here is John Delaney comes along, a lot of people tell him how great he is uh, within the FAI. There's a video showing him doing a lot of amazing things. The journalists try to ask him questions, <laughs> don't get the chance to do it. But this time, finally, he was going to break his silence. He was this. going to, but I'm not, I don't know. We'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. He, he said a few months ago he was going to, and then he kind of became this world figure. Uh, <laughs> then he had to shred all those programs. And um, that so that's going to happen. They, they sent they sent out the, yeah, the, the program of shredding. 10,000 yeah. euros worth of shredded programs which are appealing for transparency and openness. Uh, but John Delaney has put out a letter, or the FEI put out a letter, because they put out like some crude financial results, just the, the basics. Um, they mention, uh, they say, uh, blah, blah, this is the kind of stuff that's going to be going on. 12.5 million gross through a debt restructuring agreement in 2013, a reduction of the 5 million euro FIFA loan to nil, and you wave a hat trick grant, blah, blah, blah. A couple of lines later, our bank and other loans set at 48.75 million, because it's a 5 million repayable to UEFA. FIFA's 5 million loan in 2010 to the association was reduced to nil by the end of 2013. Uh, a couple of lines later, uh, the uh, Board of the association, uh, association has secured a 12.5 million gross debt restructuring agreement in 2013, a reduction of the 5 million euro FIFA loan to nil. So, so it's definitely nil. At least that FIFA loan. Has been, uh, has been closed down to zero. We got a tweet in from Daniel Doody at Second Captains. Are you going to have a chat about Martin O'Neill making kissy faces at Leicester despite being by any measure a failure at Ireland? Uh, the truth is, no, we're not going to talk about it, Alan, because I'm afraid that talking about that subject sucks the air out of the room, and I'm, I just don't think anybody is really... I mean, you know... I don't, first of all, I should say, maybe in fairness to Martin O'Neill, I'm not sure that he really was making kissy faces to Leicester... I mean, there was sort of a link, you know, a, a link invented by a newspaper probably based on a bookmaker. Well, yeah, bookmaker suspends betting. Next time you hear of that happening, you can probably safely enough uh, ignore it being too important. Yeah, um, but I mean, say, I was recently over in, in Las Vegas, you know, doing this whole UFC thing. Uh, <laughs> the people want more Ken Las Vegas stories. More Las Vegas, more Las Vegas. <laughs> So I found, I found that, you know, uh, people get quite excited about this when they're sending you comments, say, or writing comments about what you saw. I mean, I've never had this uh, sort of stuff when I wrote about, you know, Ireland against Scotland or, you know, the Ireland-England friendly. This dirty writing, what is this dirty writing doing in the Irish Times? Or, you know, uh, people saying it was obscene or your garish blood fantasy. Uh, and all this, no one's all this mentioned kind of your stuff. garish blood fantasy for uh, Shane Long. What well, not, not this month. Anyway, what would you think yeah. if somebody was to beat up your wife or child the way that Rory McDonald was beaten up? And I thought, well, I mean, I'd feel terrible about that, but it's not really <laughs> it's not the same thing. But, you know, uh, so, so I, I posted a comment and said, uh, you know, look, check this out. And someone just tweeted me, I would be more worried, to be honest, about the effect on the psychological health of future generations of Irishman from watching the Republic of Ireland right now than from 
done from watching this uh, this uh, so-called sport. All right, let's talk Manchester United then. Louis van Gaal is at war with one of his players. Well, I don't really understand what's going on here. I mean, van Gaal gave this b- remarkable statement where he was saying, uh, you know, he's getting rid of Victor Valdez. Now, Vic- okay, well, he gets he can do what he wants, but Victor Valdez they signed, you know, last season. Uh, he decided to leave Barcelona, had a cruciate ligament injury. They're going to um, nurse him back to health. And then they've got a pretty decent substitute goalkeeper. Now he says, uh, Victor is not selected because he doesn't follow my philosophy. Uh, the philosophy is how you play football, how you maintain your match rhythm. Uh, he refused last year to play in the second team. There are a lot of other aspects in the philosophy of how you have to play like a goalkeeper. It goes on and on about the philosophy. When you're not willing to apply the principles of that philosophy, there's only one way, and that is out. We thought he would follow our philosophy. It's a big disappointment. So... Um, Valdez, Valdez uh, tweeted a thing showing the three you know, under-21 games he played, saying, respect. By which it was, it was hard to know, did he mean, I deserve more respect than to be asked to play these under-21 games? Or did he mean, I've, I have shown due respect? What is Van Gaal talking about? I actually thought it was that Van Gaal has shown a lack of respect in his comments yesterday. That's yeah. what I took it as. It's, I mean, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to know. Uh, he Van, didn't, did Van Gaal say, didn't show any respect. That's well, he did say, I have a human side. I, I put him in the team in the ga- last game of last season so that some other clubs could have a look. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very social guy, he said. Uh, but, you know, I mean, is it demeaning to, to hire a big player like that and then to make him do menial tasks like play... Like play football. Under-21 football. <laughs> Well, whatever under 21, certainly reserves, if you're not in the first team, surely you kind of have to bite the bullet and play for whoever's available. Victor Valdez, also, also Victor Valdez does not play under 21 football. Yeah. I'm also interested as to the precise structure of this under 21 tournament that Victor, Alva, Victor Valdez, <laughs> one of the oldest men in uh, world football, yeah. he literally played against uh, Eusebio, I believe, didn't he? It's, like, it's like the Olympics. You have, you have a couple, you can have underage players. You can, you know, they're supposed to work their way back to fitness or whatever. But you know, apparently, you know, Victor Valdez didn't really like a couple of the coaches. I think that might have been the issue. And apparently he's got quite a big ego. But Louis van Gaal doesn't like people like that. He doesn't like people that have a big ego. So it it seems as though it wasn't going to happen. I mean, the philosophy thing just doesn't make any sense. Because if they're going to get rid of David Gea, then uh, they need a goalkeeper. We don't know yet if if they... So they need a goalkeeper. So obviously if Victor Valdez was seen as a serious candidate to be that man, it wouldn't matter that he didn't play in an under-21 game last year. Uh, I think it may all have more to do with him uh, playing against Hull uh, and facing crossed balls for the first time in his career and not knowing what to do. I think that might actually have more to do with him being moved out of Man United. All right, on July 4th, 2013, our next guest was in Perth, Scotland. He was going about his business as a jump jockey. By the end of the day's racing, he'd suffered a horrible fall and the doctors were giving him a fairly slim chance of survival. Even if he did pull through, it was thought he'd be brain damaged and paralysed. Fast forward two years of painstaking recovery and rehab and he was back in the saddle, believe it or not, in the 4.20 at Sul last Sunday. Can you please welcome the unbelievable Brian Toomey! <laughs> Take any of those, Brian. Great to have you here, first of all. Uh, we'll start at last weekend, because that's when you came back. Congratulations, first of all, on getting back in the saddle. Was it an enjoyable experience? Yeah, it was obviously... Uh, I'm glad to get that one out of the way, because obviously it was a big comeback, and a lot of media and a lot of people like you like asking me questions and all that. But uh, No, it was good to get that out of the way. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't a fairy tale ending, because I thought it was a complete certainty. I thought it, like, it wouldn't... I thought they wouldn't see which way he went. I thought like he'd win that easily. Like, but um, no, unfortunately, as I say, it wasn't a fairy tale ending. But it was good to get back. Was it even in your own mind? Did you need to get back and race competitively again for the first time, just to be a hundred percent sure you were bang on? No, because as you'd probably have guessed, I'm a confident enough kind of person, and I always thought I'd be all okay when it comes to stuff like that. But um, no, as I say, I haven't admitted this to many people, but yeah, it'll take a few races to kind of get your eye back in and to. Like just to get back into it, really. It will take a few races. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an absolute miracle that you're back at all. And maybe you can just take us back to the fall that you suffered two years ago. Do you have any memory yourself of what happened? No, I have no memory myself of what happened, but um, yeah, it was it was quite bad. Um, on the 4th of July 2013, I had a really bad fall uh, at Perth Racecourse, which is in Scotland. And um, 
I was actually dead for six seconds. I lost consciousness for six seconds and then a, at the racetrack and I was resuscitated and then I was rushed to hospital and I got to hospital and apparently I'd only had only a 3% chance of survival after, after coming back from the dead practically. And then I was um, put into an induced coma for up to two weeks and um, during, whilst I was in the induced coma, the doctors and the neurosurgeons had worked out that um, the brain was swelling up so much, and so then they came up with the decision that they were going to remove like half my skull, like to make room for the brain to swell. And so then it was a, a fairly rocky road. Let's see some <laughs> pictures behind. That's not my good side, like you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a fairly rocky road, obviously for for family and that, because obviously I, I was in hospital for. 157 nights, I can't remember a single thing from there. I'm probably better off because it would have been quite a worrying time. Um, you, so. li- you literally can't remember anything from, for those, that's what we're talking, f- over five months in hospital? Yeah, well... So, so you just remember li- literally arriving or at some point while you were home? Well, you wouldn't believe it. I d- my sister, it happened in July 2013. My sister got married the following July, so July 2014, and I can just remember bits of that. And like it wasn't the alcohol because I don't drink much alcohol, so it wasn't. I wouldn't blame the alcohol, but um, yeah, my memory was hit very, very hard by the accident. Um, so I suppose I can't complain really. I'm I'm lucky to be where I am. We we need a background. To, so there's no moment that you remember kind of returning to consciousness or returning to awareness. Is what, what I mean? How did that? It's not like waking up or something. I mean, what's that process then been like for you? I don't know. It's crazy because obviously. I, I can't speak to anyone else, any other patient that went through something similar, like or that have been in like an induced coma. But um, like yeah, obviously, fair enough. On the day of the accident, I had three seizures. I like so I had three brain seizures on the day of the accident. So for months and months, I was on a lot of medication for that to treat, like for the seizures. And then, I, then obviously, I was in an induced coma as well. And like it does. All the medication you're on, they put you on for like something so seriousness, so serious. Like it does, like knock you out. Like you can't, like it does really affect it, like memory and all that. In those early days, those first few days after it happened, you said that you were given a three percent chance of surviving. I, I believe your parents had actually started arranging your funeral. Yeah, my mother had my organs donated as well, which is. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, we haven't spoke since. Uh, yeah, no, it was, as I say, it was, it was, it was quite bad, and, um, like, it was so hard for family in that, because, um, like, I, I don't remember how, how bad it was, because I don't remember it, but, like, they think it's a complete miracle, like. When you what, did, what, sorry, Ken, yeah. Sorry, but what was involved in that, the, the, say, the bit that you can't now remember, the first kind of year of it, uh, what, what kind of recovery, but what was involved in the recovery during that period, like, what, what kind of stuff did they have you doing? Yeah, well, there was a lot of, I had to do, like, I had loads and loads of checkups with neurosurgeons, doctors. I was getting a lot of occupational therapy, um, which is like brain training. Like, it's like, it's like being back in play school again, to be honest. But uh, it was, I had a lot of that. And as I say, loads of checkups. But um, I was on a lot of medication for a long, long time. Um, obviously, to do with the seizures and, like, what's, like to help the brain. Because the brain was, like, it swelled up so much. And then, like, when the swelling went down, it was obviously, like, they were afraid the brain was damaged. So I was on a lot of medication for that for a long time. And then I was getting occupational therapy for up to a year after the injury. Um, So... What was the hardest part from the point you can remember trying to get get back to some sort of a life like you had before? What was the hardest part of your recovery process over the last couple of years? Yeah, you wouldn't believe it, but um, people maybe... Because, like, obviously a brain and head injury is so, so serious. But, like, thankfully, people don't know enough about these kind of things because they are serious. And the hardest part of my recovery was maybe, like, people underestimating your recovery. People, like, I was practically treated as an invalid for a long, long time. And that was the hardest part of it because throughout my recovery, I was trying to remain, like, really positive and, like, really determined that I was going to get back. And, like, I had people every single day, like, telling me to kind of like that it was never going to happen and all that like so it, w- it was quite hard like like people underestimating that right that was the hardest part of it i read that you once went five days and nights without sleeping which i think is only two days off the world record not a lot of people have, have been there 
What's uh, what do you remember about that, like sort of day five? Well, if I knew I was going to complete a world record, I would have stayed awake for. <laughs> I'm surprised you knew that. To be honest, that's a bit random. But um, no, uh, no, I, I didn't know that. But yeah, obviously, it really affected sleep. But parts of me wouldn't blame the injury alone for that. But, but like, obviously, as a jockey, we've such a routine. Like we're practically up at maybe six o'clock in the morning, we're busy and you have so much to think about and when the injury happened and I was just at home, like doing nothing and I was quite down and like my, obviously my routine was really badly affected and I was overthinking as you do and um, I couldn't get to sleep, I genuinely just couldn't switch off whatsoever but I'm making up for it now, really. (laughs) Working hard. You said that you, just the previous answer there, that you had people telling you you wouldn't you want to get back and people wouldn't let you get back so you're talking about getting back to being a professional jockey quite early on in your recovery was the initial part of it okay i just i need to get back walking i need to get as, as much back as i had before or pretty quickly were you thinking i want to go back to doing what i love well as i say i couldn't remember a single thing about being in hospital like um like 157 nights and like my family and friends were telling me like that's all I was saying whilst I was in hospital like I was like laid in a hospital bed saying like oh I can't wait to get back and all and I'm sure at the time they were probably just agreeing with me because it was making me happier for them to agree with me rather than tell me it was never going to happen but no I wasn't allowed back into um, say like a racing yard like like a racehorse trainer's yard until it was a year after the injury because there's so much insurance to do with horse racing and that I wouldn't have been insured and um so I wasn't allowed back until it was a year after the injury. So the, the day the year was up, oh, I, was, um, I was trying to get back into business, really. And after head or brain injury, um, you, can't, like, you can't reapply for your jockey's license until it's a year after the injury. So um, I had a long road after that, to be honest. What, what gave you the belief, though, that you could actually do that? Because... Did you, did you always feel you had that level of determination in your own mind? Or did... Uh, catastrophic injuries such as this bring a determination out in you that you weren't you didn't even know yourself that you possessed no obviously I had a lot of determination and to be fair as a jockey any sportsman you need to have like a lot of determination because like I'm sure it really helps you and like say like people I look up to maybe like Tony McKay like the willpower and determination he has shown throughout his career has been phenomenal like and yeah like there are people who would inspire you and I don't know, as a jockey, like, yeah, because they say we get, like, one in every 16 rides we have on the race course, we get a fall. So, like, you have to pick yourself up and brush yourself off after falling at 40 miles an hour, hitting the ground, like, at 40 miles an hour, like, you have to pick yourself up and pick yourself up and brush yourself off and kind of get back on board. So, it's kind of, we were kind of brought up with that willpower and that, that determination, like, it really helps us, I reckon. I'm just wondering when you when you talk about what's the last thing that you can remember before the fall. I mean, how how kind of um, intact are those memories leading up to then? I can remember all the bills I had to pay and <laughs> all the bills I had when I came out. But no, um, it really affect. I think I was trying to think back on it. Like people were mentioning stuff that happened maybe like two or three weeks before the injury, and like it was just it was just a blur to me, really, to be honest. Um, and. You no, know, um, I reckon maybe six weeks before the injury. Like, what about the the fact that I mean, you obviously knew that you were jockeying some, but what about your ability to, like your your jockey skills? I mean, were they intact? I mean, when you got back on the horse, were you kind of like, yeah, you know, I kind of feel this is, you know, this is just uh, familiar to me now. Yeah, it's not being being cocky or confident, but like, it's like a kid when you learn to walk, like you never forget, do you? Like, I thought like. Like when you feel like that, you have that talent. You you, you never lose it, do you? Um, so uh, I thought when I got back on board, obviously, yeah, it took a while to. Because as stupid as it sounds, like all the muscles that you'd use, like being a jockey, like I was laid in a hospital bed for for nearly six months. So obviously, I would have lost all them kind of muscles and all that. And maybe the first week, like whilst I got back on board, like it took about a week to get back into kind of the swing of things. You had the option of an insurance payout, as far as I understand. You're also in a position there where you, 
I would have thought a lot of people might reappraise what they're doing, not just the dangers of being a jockey, but the grinding nature of the life. It's not an easy, it's certainly not an easy sport. Was there any party, it seems rather than moving away from it, maybe your love of what you were doing has been reinforced in some way over the last couple, because it would have been maybe the easy option to uh, cut your losses and walk away. Yeah, like we're lucky as a jockey, like we've, we're, we've career in an insurance and it was simple as me to take 80 grand, I know which sounds like a crazy amount of money, or to get back. But obviously it was a passion to get back. It's all I wanted to do. And um, I didn't want to get back. So like I turned down the 80 grand and I just wanted to get back. Yeah, of course, it's going to be very hard for me to make 80 grand as a jockey. But like I have that determination. I'm going to work that hard. Because obviously a lot of owners and trainers would have been, will still be like a little bit wary about like, give me the opportunity like, to, for me to ride their horse because of the injury I've been through. But they're going to have to kind of realise that there's no way in the wide world I would have got back if I was a greater risk than any other jockey. Well, when I try to think about it, like to try and put myself in your position, the thing that, uh, that strikes me might have been one of the difficult things to, to kind of overcome would have been what my mother would have said about it. She might have been like, you're not getting back on a horse. Like you said, if it's, if it's a fall every 16... If the fall every 16 races, then I, she would have, I'd say, gone absolutely ballistic if I said to her, I want to, I want to get back and, and, and do it. And so what happened there? Yeah, but um, at 26, you don't really have to listen to your mother anymore, do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you do, actually. I constantly have to listen to her suggestions <laughs> on what I could be doing better. For, for, for you to say something like that, your mother must be here, is she? <laughs> Um, no, obviously, yeah, of course, my family, like, they're only human, and to be honest, they're not involved in horses, like, they wouldn't be involved in horses if it was only for me, like, I mean, my dad's a farmer at home, my mum's a nurse, so my mum will have seen plenty of injuries in her time too, but um, it, like, um, did, like, at the start, yeah, they would have been like, obviously, they wouldn't have wanted me to get back on board, but I had my first ride back on Sunday at Subtle Racecourse over in England, and I got my family over, so my, my my mother and my father and my brother and my sister came over and of course yeah they would nearly have a heart, had a heart attack when they see me like going down ready to go to, in a race like but um it's going to take a long time for them to kind of um forget about the past but no they're, they're just glad because i'm happy to be honest what sort of hoops did you have to jump through to come back to to convince the the bha in the uk that you could get a license to be a jockey again um, well, t- to start off with, which was a massive help to me, a year after the injury, I had to reset my driving test again. So, and it, like, if you're allowed driving a road with a 20% chance of having a car crash, surely as God you could be a jockey again. Well, that's the way I was looking at it. Like, um, so I did. That was a big help for me, like having passed my driving test. So I had to, before the driving test, I had to have an eyesight test, a hearing test, and then I had to sit the test, and then I had to like to see like three of the top neurosurgeons in England I had to like for them to be happy with me like and one top neurosurgeon said to me like that um he couldn't see any reason why I couldn't get back so and that was before I found out I could get back so that kind of built my confidence up a little bit um I had to do like balance tests um I had to do like loads of different kind of tests like balance tests like and like then they had to see me on board a horse and like like kind of tell me what to do and check my memory and stuff so no it was it was quite hard you were you mentioned that it wasn't a fairy tale ending your horse you had to put him up at one stage afterwards you said i didn't want to put the horse through hardship because i've been through hardship myself and i know how that feels yeah to be fair because i have a lot to do with the horse to be honest like i like i'd ride him every morning so i'll be i'll see the horse every morning and um obviously a bit of a soft spot for the horse and like obviously i know exactly like his ability like i know exactly what he can do and like even halfway through the race the other day, like he didn't feel right, and so I pulled him up, and like so a few people were like, "Oh God, like why did you pull him up?" But like he wasn't right, and um, if I want him to win a Galway on the second of August, like I'm going to have to make him right, don't I? So. Brian, it's absolutely it's staggering, and we really appreciate you talking so so openly about all this uh, all this very personal stuff and this journey you've taken. You've had this very definite goal for a long time. You're back racing now. How do you reset? Do you have do you have are, are you that goal oriented? Have you got one new goal now that you're going to have to strive for for the next six months, the next year? How does that work? 
No, I don't. I've just one big goal. Obviously, I want to kind of leave the past behind me. I was doing quite well before I had the injury. So, like, I want to kind of maybe, if I can try, like, forget about, like, yeah, at the moment, like, with all the media and stuff, I'm known as, like, the jockey who got back after being killed, practically. But I want people to forget about that. I want to be known as someone who, like, who's, who's been successful, who's been very competitive. And uh, so hope that's my next goal. But it's going to... It's going to take a long time, but as I say, I'm willing to put the work in to do that. Like. Yeah, I'm sure you are. Well, listen, you've been absolutely amazing. We wish you well in the future. Brian Toomey, everybody. Thanks so much. That's pretty much it from the Sugar Club tonight, folks. Thanks so much to the Irish Times and to our brilliant sponsors, Rabo Direct, for making the show and the podcast happen. A big thanks to all our guests tonight as well, and to you lot who made the night so special. You've been absolutely brilliant, especially those hero entries. Give yourselves a round of applause, please. We'll have two brand new podcasts for you on Monday. And don't forget to enter the Rabo Electric Picnic competition that's online and in your free notebooks tonight. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Thank Ken. Thank you too, Kieran. Thanks to all the team. And thanks very much for coming along. Good night, folks. Thank you. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. <laughs>